Greetings, good morning, friends. How we doing? Good? Good. All right, let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2, continuing the journey in the book of Acts. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll make sure that you get a Bible. Acts is the first book after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then Acts, if you get to Romans or 1st, 2nd Corinthians, go back to the left. So New Testament, fifth book, Acts chapter 2 is where we will be. My name is Jason. I serve as pastor here, and many of you know, I hope all of you know at this point, we're in the midst of a transition here this summer, moving from Park Community Church in Logan Square to Church in the Square, uh, a new independent autonomous uh, church on September 1st. And so through this season, we are asking that you continue to pray. We have our first uh, membership transition course happening this evening. And so if you're not a partner yet, if you are a partner with Park or you already know, yes, I'm becoming a member, regardless of what your story is, we would invite you as the church to pray. Pray that the Lord's will would be done. Pray that we would have deeper and richer unity together as, as God's people because in many respects, we believe that God is leading us into this new season, not because of the people who are here, but because of the people who are not here yet because of the men and women whose lives we pray will be impacted, transformed by the gospel that we meet here on the near west side in the very near future. And so let's pray that the Lord's kingdom would come, that his will would be done uh, right here in the near west side as it is in heaven. And so with that, we're jumping back into Acts. This will be, I believe, our fourth installment in uh, this series, really to help us understand what is it and how is it that God moves in the local church. Acts is the story of the early church beginning. And what is amazing about the early church beginning is who God chooses as the point leader of this church. So look with me, Acts chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, read this way. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. If you remember previously in chapter 2, the Spirit of God came upon the people of God the people who are waiting for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes as a sound like rushing wind and tongues like fire. They begin to speak in a way that they cannot fully comprehend, and yet they can't comprehend how, and yet they can understand what is being said. And so this powerful experience is happening. And so you have two different kinds of people that begin to gather as they hear this noise, as they hear this, 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 um, this sound happening. And so one kind of person that gathers says, tell us about what's going on. Open, interested, curious. Another group of people said they must be drunk and crazy. And so along the road of following Jesus as the church, we will no doubt encounter both kinds of people, the curious and the critic, the curious and the critic. And here, Peter begins to speak because he wants to correct the critic. He wants to say, they are not drunk, it is only 9 a.m., those are fighting words if you think that they are already in a state where they are inebriated, right? So that's not what's going on. And so from the outset, Peter tells them that's not what this is. And what he begins to do is preach a sermon in chapter 2. Preach a sermon explaining what is happening. So he comes out of the gate saying, this is not what's happening. They are not drunk. Let me tell you 
what is going on. And so, Acts chapter 2, verses 14 and following, is a sermon. And so today my task is to preach a sermon that was already preached. This is like biblical inception, right? So I will preach a sermon about a sermon that was preached at Pentecost, at this day when the Spirit of God came down. But before we get there, let's talk about Peter. Peter's a really interesting character to be the one who stands, it says, for the eleven. Stands for the other 11 disciples. If, if you are unfamiliar or if you need a reminder of Peter's story, then you must recall that, that Jesus calls him. And one of the first things that we see about Peter is that he wants to walk on water as Jesus walked on water. And so he begins to walk on water, but I mean, he's walking on water, so he kind of freaks out a little bit, loses focus, doesn't keep his eyes on Jesus. There's a sermon in and of itself. He looks away and he begins to drown. And Peter, a couple of seasons and moments and scenes later, is there with Jesus in Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter boldly, because he's always the first one to speak, right? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus says, you're absolutely right. Literally the next scene, Jesus says, I've got to go die. Peter says, that's a bad idea. Jesus calls him Satan. And then once they finally get to Jerusalem and Jesus dies, people look to Peter and they go, Peter, weren't you the guy with Jesus? He's like, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Three times. It is that dude who has completely un and inconsistent behavior when it comes to his spiritual walk. It's that dude who begins to speak at Pentecost and say, here's what's going on. He becomes the point leader of the early church. Peter should give you and I great hope. Peter should give you and I great hope because he is a man, he is a follower of Jesus who cannot figure it out, and yet he is a man, he is a follower of Jesus whom Jesus continues to use. Can I get an amen? Amen. You see, the Lord chooses you to do incredible things not because you are incredible, but because he is, because he is gracious. And so these words of Peter are coming from a story of being a recipient, a beneficiary of grace. And can I suggest to you, Peter knows what it is to receive grace. So with that being said, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we can come to it. We thank you that we are corrected by it. We thank you that we are comforted by it. I thank you because I am desperate for it, God. I'm desperate for it this morning because I, I realize, looking back in my week, that I was not always in control of my emotions. I, I constantly came to the end of myself in terms of what I knew, what I was able to do. My righteousness was never enough, Father, this week. And I imagine I'm not the only one that feels these things. But not only, Father, do I fall short in terms of what I have, but even what I do, Father, falls short of who you are. And so we need a word from God. We, we, don't, we don't need a sermon that is quotable. We need an encounter with God. We need to meet with God. And so we thank you that you're the kind of God who came down by your spirit at Pentecost and you're the God who meets with his church in a special and significant way when we gather as your church. And so it's because your word teaches this that we anchor ourselves in that, that whether this is the first time we are in a gathering like this or this has been our church for a while, we thank you that you are the God who is so sensitive, so, so clear and kind with your people. 
And yet, God, when you, when you meet with us, we, we are also exposed. We're comforted for sure that you are the God who is with us, even in the valley of the shadow of death. We need not fear any evil. And yet we know, God, that when we walk in the light, things in our heart are exposed, things in our mind. And so, God, as even sin is revealed in this moment, would you graciously correct us? Would you graciously rebuke us? Would you graciously call us by your kindness to repentance? that you would be glorified, that your people would become holy. Oh, what a promise your son has made in Ephesians 5, that he will present us one day to himself spotless, without wrinkle, and holy. And so it's that day that we long for. It's that way that we desire, or that day that we desire that you, you transform us towards. And we ask all of that in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, let's race away to this sermon Peter begins to open his mouth again, standing for the eleven, speaking for the eleven, speaking really as a prophet, as a prophet is one who says, thus saith the Lord. Here's what God says. And so therefore, it's not a mistake that in verse 16, he begins to quote Joel. Oh, it is a good day when you get to hear from the prophet Joel. Here's what Peter says. Look at verse 16 in chapter 2 of Acts. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in these last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams, even my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He quotes Joel 2, and Joel has a number of themes here that he's communicating, but we need to keep in the back of our mind that the reason that Peter is bringing up Joel 2 is he is explaining what is happening here at Pentecost. He is explaining to the people, his audience, some Jews, some unbelieving Jews, some who know Jesus, love Jesus, are following Jesus, have been filled with the Spirit, others who are coming because they heard a sound. He's speaking to all of them, and he is communicating what is happening. Don't you love that, that, that this news, this, this announcement, this explanation, this sermon will be preached not just to people who believe it, but to those who are curious, those who are critics. Peter is keeping in mind all of them, and he doesn't try to step away from the scriptures in order to communicate to all of them. He goes to deep cuts, Joel 2. And so in order to do the same thing in the 21st century, we do not believe what is so in vogue today, that in order to be relevant and connected to a plethora of different kinds of people, that we need to step away from the scriptures, we need more than ever to step into the scriptures and understand them completely and perfectly the way that God intended them to be understood and lived out. Are you with me yet? And this is good news for us. It's good news for us because everything you need to know about who God is is revealed to you through the scriptures. Everything you need to know about who you are is revealed to us, grounded for us in the scriptures. And so we don't have to get inventive. This should give us great peace. We don't have to get inventive about, oh my goodness, a spirit came down, people are speaking. Let's figure this out. Go to the word of God. 
The word of God will be our hope and stay and help us to understand what is happening. And so he goes to Joel too. And Joel is speaking about the day of the Lord. Now for many of us, if our mind goes anywhere with the day of the Lord, we go to doomsday, we go to judgment day, we go to the end of everything, right? And that's the day of the Lord. And, and we're only kind of right. Because the day of the Lord was a general idea as much as it was a specific one. A specific one about the end of time and a general one about God coming to bring judgment and salvation. So the day of the Lord for Joel was not something that was one particular thing out in the future. It was revealing of the character and nature of God, that our God is a God who comes. Our God is a God who shows up. Our God is a God who is present. Our God is a God who shows up in real space and real time, and he brings two things at the day of the Lord. He brings judgment and he brings salvation. See, we are both comforted when the Lord shows up and we are completely exposed. You ever felt that even in your, in your time in prayer, in your time in the Word? I'm deeply comforted by what, by what God is saying to me, and I am deeply exposed by what God is saying to me. See, this is when we know that we're reading the Scriptures appropriately, when we are never safe, and yet we are always safe. That we are never quite comfortable, and yet we are always comforted. Oh, what good news this is for us. See, this is what the day of the Lord was all about, that when God shows up, he is bringing judgment to the living, to the dead, that he is bringing judgment to bear. He is bringing a consequence for sin and for guilt and shame and pain and all of the evil of this world. And yet he is bringing salvation from it by his own power. And so this is what, what Peter wanted to bring the attention to his crowd to. And Joel also brings up the Spirit of God. As Joel is proclaiming about the day of the Lord, it is the Spirit of God that will be poured out upon the people of God. That he'll be poured out. And here's the salvation, that God is actually entrusting himself, giving himself, if you will, to his people by grace, through faith, the Spirit of God filling the people of God on the day of the Lord. And yet what we're seeing here at Pentecost is some feel exposed, some not understanding fully what's going on, and others feeling comforted and empowered by the Spirit. And so Joel's words are coming true, and this is what Peter is trying to help them understand. That what Joel said in Joel chapter 2, you are now realizing, seeing, enjoying, experiencing right here and right now. But that's not all he wants us to see. He wants us to see the evidence of this. So on the day of the Lord, the Spirit of God will be poured out on all flesh, and there will be prophesying, there will be visions, there will be dreams, there will be this experience of wonder and of signs, all of this taking place. And so the day of the Lord is the moment, the Spirit of God is the power, and the visions and dreams and speaking, these are all of the evidences that Peter is talking about. This is happening right here and right now. But it's more than that. Peter is an incredible a preacher in that he doesn't just quote the scriptures, he helps to explain what they mean. And so now he brings it right up into their kitchen in verse 22. Look at, with me, look at it with me, if you will. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now Peter begins to do something perhaps quite unexpected, and certainly would have been unexpected to his first century listeners, because he quotes Joel too, and then he starts talking about Jesus. 
He quotes Joel 2 about this, this day of the Lord that is coming, these last days that are coming, the Spirit of God being poured upon the people of God. They're like, I'm tracking with you. I know why you're quoting Joel 2. I get it. I'm seeing the connection. You ever feel like that in a sermon? Seeing the connection. And then you pull this other, th- I, you lost me. You lost me. Miss me on that transition to Jesus. Didn't see that coming. Don't know why you went there. In fact, the only crossover language, if you will, is this wonders and signs language. Did you see that in verse 22? Mighty works, wonders, and signs. This was the kind of language that Joel was using. And so Peter juxtaposes these two particular ideas, Joel 2 and the, the day of the Lord and the Spirit coming and these signs and wonders, and then he moves all the way. Men of Israel, hear what I have to say about Jesus of Nazareth, the one that you murdered. God raised him up. And in fact, even between the lines, some of you like theological like gurus are like, he just talked about predestination and I'm so excited. Go there. Go there. Did you notice that language? Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about still. Let's zoom in for your joy and mine. This Jesus, verse 23 says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. See, Peter wants us to see that the God who planned the day of the Lord, that the God who planned the last days, the God who planned to pour out his spirit, the God who planned to reveal signs and wonders is also the God who planned that his son, Jesus Christ, would be delivered over and would die according to his foreknowledge, so he knew it was going to happen, but also his plan, it was his intention that it would. See, many of us might celebrate the spirit coming down, but we don't know exactly how to celebrate that Jesus was tried and crucified. There's a complexity to that. There's a heaviness to that. Even a question of why would God intentionally plan such a thing according to his foreknowledge and by his own power and by his own plan. See, God is a God who knows all things, but God is also a God, particularly Ephesians chapter 1 reveals this, who orchestrates all things according to the counsel of his will. So our God is not a God who just knows everything and is not a surprise. Our God is a God who knows everything and is active in everything. In fact, Colossians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the one who holds all things together. He's not just a God who knows everything and goes, I wonder how this is going to go. No, I don't wonder because I know how it's going to go. I'm just going to step back and watch it happen. The Lord is not simply watching earth unravel. The Lord is simply not watching history unravel. He is a God who is intimately involved and bringing about more than that, his plan. And so I trust that this will be a comfort for many of us as we look around and maybe have questions, concerns, criticism, critique of our world and those in power. God is a God who works all things together according to the counsel of his plan. He is fully in control. And you might be like, preacher, move on. That's like JV level kind of Christianity. Then why don't we believe it, church? See, some of the most simple things that we go so quickly through in our faith are the most basic because they are the most powerful if you truly believe them. Think about what would happen to you and to me if we actually believed that God was perfectly in control. And it wasn't just something that we could sort of check off mentally, but I actually believe it. I actually anchor my life in the reality that God is a God who knows everything and God is a God who brings everything according to his good plan. He says this, and yet he said, you crucified him, killed him and, and by the hands of lawless men, and yet God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible It was not possible for him to be held by it. Don't you love that line? 
Let that just sort of soothe you. It wasn't even possible for him to be held by it. This is the kind of power of our Lord, but the question for us still, God raised him up, loosed the pangs of death. Peter, what are you getting at? How is this connected? In order to help us see the connection, he goes to another deep cut in Psalm 16, and he begins to quote David. Look at verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Speaks about hope. Speaks about this presence and relationship. Speaks about this power that the soul is not even left over to Hades. The Holy One will not see corruption, but still we want to know, Peter, what are you talking about? What does that have to do with me and my life right here and right now? Look at verse 29. Oh, this is good. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. This is a violation of first century preaching. This is a violation of first century preaching. What what Peter just did was quoted the greatest king in Israel's history, the one they venerated and loved more than anyone else. He quotes him on the day of Pentecost when all of this power is happening and people have questions. He quotes him and he says, in fact, this text is not talking about David. This text is not talking about him. Many believe that this was talking about David, that that death would not hold him back, that he was the Holy One, that he was the one that this was talking about. And so Peter is saying, can I just tell you something? He's dead, he's buried, and I could take you to his tomb today. I could take you to his tomb right now because he hasn't gone anywhere, right? Now think about it this way. They're taking, but Peter rather is taking, one of the most religiously prized figures in all of Israelite history, and he is saying, do not place your hope in him. Do not place your hope in him. Can you imagine if we began to fill in that blank where King David was with the gods of our age that we often trust in? Can I tell you this? I don't know your religious background, but you, you put any pope in that blank, he is dead, he is buried, and we can take you to his tomb to this day. Any preacher whose sermons you love and enjoy and begin to anchor your spiritual formation in, one day they will be dead and buried and we can visit their tomb. Mother Teresa, as much as she's contributed to this world, she's dead and was buried, and I can take you to her tomb to this day. Muhammad, dead, buried, I can take you to his tomb to this day. Gandhi, dead, buried, we can take you to their tomb to this day. Trump, one day, will be dead, buried, we can take you to the tomb. Obama, one day, dead, buried, we can take you to the tomb. Oprah, one day, dead, buried, we can take you to the tomb. Beyonce, dead, buried, one day, we can take you to the tomb. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down, church? What Peter is helping everyone see is salvation, hope, power. What you are experiencing comes from no one who one day you will visit at their grave. It only comes from the one whose grave you cannot visit today because he's not there. 
He is not there. He is the Holy One. See, this is what he begins to do now. He begins to do great Christological preaching from the Old Testament. See, every page and paragraph, even from the Old Testament, is all about Jesus. And where do we get that idea? Acts chapter 2. Watch what this assassin from the pulpit begins to do in verse 29. Verse 30. Be therefore, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, for David did not ascend into heaven. Oh, he's not even done, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make a make your enemies your footstool. That's preaching. Do you see now that he has made all of the connections where soon we're like, why is he talking about Joel? Why is he talking about Jesus? Why is he quoting David? He begins to thread it all together. See, what essentially he just said, because Jesus did not see corruption, because he lived a perfect life, because Jesus died on the cross, because he died sacrificially, because Jesus was truly buried, he was buried literally, because Jesus is the one who rose from the dead, he rose victoriously, and also because Jesus ascended, he ascended authoritatively, therefore he is fulfilling his promise that he has sent his spirit to us. This is the day of the Lord, this is the day the Lord has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it. The spirit of God is coming because Jesus Christ has resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God. See, if we want to understand how is it that power could show up like this, it is always about Jesus. It is always about Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is the one who deserves all the credit. We're really good, aren't we, at explaining the positive impact on our world about a bunch of people whose graves we'll visit one day. What Peter is saying is don't get it twisted. The one who rose from the dead is the one who holds all things together, is the one who brings about his good, pleasing, and perfect will, is the one who is the hope of the world. And he brings it all to bear here. It's sort of his summary, if you will, of what he is trying to say. And I think even what he is trying, what, what rather Luke is trying to communicate to Theophilus, the, the author of this book, to the main audience of this book. Look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. He wrote to give Theophilus certainty. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This dude's a savage. That's amazing. What, did you hear what he just did? He not only communicated who Jesus is and what he had accomplished, but then he said, God has made him both Lord and Christ. This is the man you murdered. This is the man you murdered. See, many of us love the story of Jesus, but we've never repented that it was my sin that held him there. See, I hear my mocking voice cry out amongst the scoffers. This Jesus whom you crucified. To understand the power of that, we must understand what Peter means 
by Lord and Christ, and even by calling him Jesus. See, three distinct ways of not understanding who Jesus is that Peter highlights here for us, that if we are to understand the deep and broken morbidity of our sin, we must understand who is the one that we have crucified. First, Peter calls him Lord. That means David is not king, Jesus is. He is giving him the title of authority. He is giving him the title that is only due his name, that Jesus is the Lord. Every square inch of all of creation, he announces that is all mine. See, Jesus is not Lord when you bow the knee. Jesus is Lord, therefore you must bow your knee. He is not waiting for you to acknowledge him, for him to enjoy the office of his lordship. He is Lord, and he is waiting for all of creation to acknowledge the reality of who he is. See, coming to Jesus is not about making him something. Coming to Jesus is about acknowledging who he is already. He is Lord, and there is no other. Not only that, but Peter calls him the Christ. This would have been very helpful, very important for his first century Jewish audience to understand. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the one. Ever since you were a good little Jew going to Hebrew school, learning all the details, the promises of God, he is the yes and amen, the one that every whisper, every page, every paragraph, every promise was pointing to Jesus the Christ. See, Christ is not his last name. It's another title. He is the Christ. He's the one that we have been waiting for. We're not waiting for another. He is the fulfillment. He is the yes and amen. He is the answer to God's promises. So he is Lord in that he is fully in charge. He is Christ in that he is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. And he is Jesus because he's also come intimately in human form to be your friend. Not just your friend, but he is a friend, one who befriends the least, the last, the lost, and the most vulnerable. See, Peter takes us and says he is Lord in Christ, but he's also the one who came down and took on flesh. He's also Emmanuel, God with us. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all of creation. See, Peter is giving us an incredible Christology, or rather understanding of who Christ is, of who Jesus is. He is Lord. He is Christ. He is Jesus. And you can't pick one of those. He is all of those. You cannot worship him as the Christ and not worship him as Lord. You cannot befriend him as Jesus and not lay your life down for him as the one who has fulfilled all the promises of God. See, once we get a picture for who Jesus is, I think we get a picture of the powerful accusation that Peter has just made. This Jesus, you crucified. This Lord, you crucified. This Christ, you crucified. You know, I think many of us read that and go, it would have been really bad to be one of those people when Peter said that to them. And really bad to be Peter, or one of those people hearing Peter say that, I'm so glad I wasn't there, I'm so glad I didn't do it. So glad I'm not culpable in that. Biblically, theologically, and when we take a bigger picture of the scriptures, what we understand is that it's not just a song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, that summarizes this reality of our culpability in the death of Christ, but we understand that if anyone has fallen short of the glory of God, it was their sin, it was my sin, it was your sin 
that nailed him there, that held him there. There needs to be this personal wrestle of understanding that my sin is not something that is not as bad as somebody else's. All of our sin is a violation, and it's an agreement to an allegiance that is treasonous against the Lord and Christ of the universe. So this accusation is not something that we need to read about. It's something that happened then. This is something that I have to own, that I have to admit, that I have to acknowledge. I crucified him. Bring it a little bit more culturally. When, uh, recently, when the Passion of the Christ came out, there was a lot of talk about it being anti-Semitic because it put Jews in a light that it looked like they were the ones who nailed Jesus to the cross. See, each and every one of us should have identified with that in that moment. Because I was the one who put Jesus on the cross. It was my sin that put him there. It was because of my fallenness, my brokenness, my selfishness, my arrogance, my self-righteousness that led to Jesus on the cross. And yet, we often wrestle with this, don't we? Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. What a great phrase. What it really means is that they were completely exposed at their inner self. See, the heart is the inner self. It was understood to be the very center of emotions, of thoughts, and of feelings, and of dreams, and longings that you would have. So what, what, the, what the writer here, what Luke is helping us to see that was happening there, after pre- Peter preaches this sermon, right, it just exposes Everybody. Everybody. There were people there who did not drive the nails in Jesus' hands, and yet they all felt cut to the heart. They all felt cut to the heart. They all felt exposed. See, one of our greatest issues as a culture is none of us feels exposed when we hear the gospel. So what a great story. What a great thing for me to add on to my life. So glad that Jesus died for me. That's a great story, powerful. You crucified him. You've got to wrestle with that. You've got to hear that. I crucified him. We've got to wrestle with that. We've got to hear that. We've got to realize that we are completely exposed in this. Completely exposed at our inner self. Not, and this is what this means. Not just your behavior. It's not just that you and I do things that are wrong or fail to do things that are good. It's that I have thoughts that are antithetical to the goodness and grace of Jesus, the Lord in Christ. It's that I have affections in my heart that love myself more than I love God. It's that my whole being was moving in the opposite direction of his kingdom, right? I am exposed in this as treasonous against the king of the universe. See, when we're fully exposed, we have different responses to that, don't we? Let me, let me, let me help us, again, for our joy, understand this a little bit, how, how we respond when we're exposed. I mean, think about when you're caught red-handed, as my mother used to say. When you're caught and there is no, there's no way of getting out, you are completely exposed. One thing we do is we just deny it. We deny that you have even seen reality appropriately. That is not what took place. That is not it at all. This is a defense mechanism for us, right? Or maybe if you're like me, if it's a little bit more low-key, I tell a joke and walk away, right? That's really great because you just create distance and they're going to forget about it. No, it doesn't deal with anything, right? So we either can deny it or we, another, another thing that we can do, we can rationalize it. Oh, we're so good at this. Millennials, please give me your ears. 
We have so many reasons about, well, my mom, the way that she raised me, she coddled me, and I'm just discovering this because I, I read Sheryl Sandberg, and so I understand now what's going on. Adam Grant really helped me to really understand, you know, like who in the world are those people? A lot of millennials love them. This is a way that we often think, that we begin to, to blame other people. We begin to rationalize why we've behaved a certain way. The, the other option that we have is I think what the audience there did is that you can keep your mouth shut and just say yes in your heart this is what you have done See, it's until we get to that point that forgiveness cannot be enjoyed and so here's how the first century audience responds now when they heard this they were cut to the heart and said to peter and the rest of the apostles brothers what shall we do notice that they didn't say, wow, that was really harsh language. You said that we crucified him. We weren't there. I didn't do that, right? They just said, what shall we do? In other, in other words, we, we agree. We're guilty of that statement. What shall we do? I think it's important that we realize that they, they asked Peter and the rest of the apostles, but Peter spoke. Again, verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you identify really with that brokenness of your sin, I, I, a couple of responses I think should come up when this simplicity of the gospel is, is communicated to this audience. Part of me, the way that I respond to this is like, really, that's it? He said, what, what shall we do? Repent, be baptized, Every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Perhaps you respond and say, that just seems too easy. Others of us may respond and go, well, how could Jesus be the only one for whom we need to seek forgiveness? Is there another way, another pathway, another worldview? And Peter says, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. I think the most amazing thing, though, though those things that I've just mentioned are important, the most amazing thing is that there actually is a way. The most amazing thing is there actually is a way to enjoy forgiveness. There actually is a way that when you are cut to the heart, when you're fully exposed to be healed, restored, and forgiven. This is one of those things that I think we go, okay, I've, I've heard that before. The problem is we don't believe it. We don't believe that because we rarely live underneath the banner and power of forgiveness and we spend most of our days underneath the shroud and weight of guilt and shame. But here what Peter says is that you can repent. In other words, repenting is going the opposite direction. Choosing to change your will and say, I'm no longer doing this. I'm going to do the opposite in what I do and what I think and what I love. It's a complete and holistic reversal. And the power of that is found in the second because you can't, you can't actually do that, right? If you try to change yourself, you will have the same exact experience over and over and over again. But the power here is that you can actually be washed. He says, repent and be baptized. Baptized means to be washed. He says that you can be washed, and he gets to it later. How? For the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, you can be washed clean and you can repent because Jesus already paid the penalty for your sin. This is what forgiveness actually is. 
Jesus does not forgive us because he denies reality. Jesus does not forgive us because he rationalizes your sin. Jesus can forgive us because he paid the penalty for your sin. He paid the price for your sin. We do not have a forgetful God. We do not have a rationalizing God. We have a God who has sacrificed his son on our behalf. This is what forgiveness is. It's the agreement that I will pay for the sin that you have caused. I will pay the penalty for that. I will not push it back on you. I will not hang it over your head. I will pay for it and I'll wash you clean. This is what Jesus says. This is what Jesus has done. So my brother, my sister, please hear this. When you come to God in repentance and humility, he not only pays the penalty for your sin, he washes you clean of a guilty conscience. Therefore, the old is gone, the new has come. You are a new creation, and he fills you with the Spirit of God. What that means is that the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the Spirit, in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control begin to exhibit your character because they are grounded in his character. See, he doesn't just forgive you and say, now we're level. He forgives you and then blesses you well beyond your deserving. So yes, this is too good to be true unless Jesus already paid for your sin, unless Jesus already rose from the dead, unless Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, unless Jesus, by his grace, sent the Spirit of God to fill the people of God, wash them, make them clean, and give them the gifts of the fruit of the Spirit. This is powerful. This is how Peter is explaining what's going on. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has accomplished. Verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who, be- who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. See, just when we perhaps think that now the application point is for me to work harder at repentance or perhaps to tell other people who are not yet followers of Jesus, you've got to repent. That's where the power is. Notice what Peter does. He safeguards with really good theology and says, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The Lord is the one who calls. The Lord is the one who does the work. The Lord is the one who draws people to himself. See, in and of myself, I am not drawn to God. I'm drawn away from him by my sin, by my shame, by my sorrow, by my guilt. All of those things tell me there's no way God will receive me back. There's no way. He's forgiven me once, perhaps, but not again. The Lord is the one who calls. The Lord is the one who draws. Verse 40. And with many other words, (laughs) he bore witness and continued to exhort them. Don't you love this? Even Luke thought the preacher was long-winded that day, so he just sort of like summarized, and he kept talking. Um, I couldn't record all of it, because there was a lot. (laughs) Saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Many of us think about the success of our church and its future. And we think about the numeric growth of a church. And we look at a place like Acts 2 and just go, wow, this is what's going to happen. People repent, be baptized, and all of this. Well, n- none of that happens unless, 
we ultimately acknowledge where the power for that happening comes from. Notice what Peter didn't say is we had really good ministries that offered a lot of things right where people were in different seasons of life and different things that they enjoyed. We had a really good outreach program, a really great worship service, and people clapped on rhythm and on time, right? He doesn't point to ministry as the success of ministry. He points to the power of the Holy Spirit as the power by which men and women are redeemed and brought from darkness into life. See, along the journey of life as a church, particularly in this next season, we will be drawn to trust in ministry ideas more than the Holy Spirit. We will be drawn to trust in events and programs more than the Holy Spirit. And this is why we must be grounded in the Word of God, because the Word of God never says that. The Word of God says that they were cut to the heart because their sin was exposed through preaching Joel Two, Joel 2, that's what the Spirit of God used to compel people to repentance. This is what Jesus does, though. He does the unthinkable. He takes Peter and makes him an apostle. He takes dead life and resurrects it from the dead. He is a God who forgives. He is a God who restores. Friends, I, I am willing to say, I'd like to suggest that the fruitfulness of our ministry is directly connected to our belief of the forgiveness of God and its power. That God has forgiven us and that God will forgive anyone whosoever would come and repent and believe. See, because too often we believe and build churches that enjoy the brand of forgiveness that we have enjoyed. They weren't that bad. They're kind of cool. They're like the new Logan that enjoys the restaurants and like buttons up to the top, right? That kind of cool. Like God forgives that kind of sin. But then when he draws us to the poor, when he draws us to the disenfranchised, when he draws us to have intimate relationships with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, we go, I don't know if his forgiveness extends that far. I don't know if it's for them. See, the fruitfulness of this church will be based on our faith in the forgiveness of God because it's the power of God where forgiveness shows up, or rather the forgiveness of God where his power is revealed and made perfect in our weakness. Because he's the one who's actually done something about the pain that you and I have enjoyed, or, or you and I have caused, that you and I have experienced. And can you imagine if a people like began to gather like that? A bunch of people who were exposed by the gospel and then knit back together by grace. And everyone knew that. None of us had to like put on this church Sunday thing, right? That ultimately, you know, like I'm exposed. Small groups is so great for this, by the way. Where you're exposed, you're not there just to learn more about the Bible. You're there to actually apply it and live it and to be exposed by it. Can you imagine if we became a people who lived these exposed lives that were only healed by the gospel, that were only healed by the forgiveness of God? I think this is what it would look like. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In other words, those who were being forgiven. I want you to see verse 42. They were devoted to the word of God. 43, they were devoted to the power that the Lord had put in their souls. In other words, the Holy Spirit. 44, they were devoted to sharing with one another. 45, they were devoted to sacrificing for the sake of those who had need. 46, they, they were devoted to gathering together, to food. Can I get an amen? They were, they were devoted to food. Something happens when the people of God gather around a good meal together. Verse 46, they were, they were devoted to worship and giving God the glory for what he had accomplished. Therefore, latter half of 47, they were devoted to seeing more and more people come to know, love, and follow Jesus. This is a community that only happens when we have been exposed and we all know it, and only Jesus has forgiven and restored and healed us. A church filled with people who act like they have saved themselves leads to zero fruit. But a church filled with people who know that it was my sin that put him there. I hear my mocking voice cry out amongst the scoffers, you crucified him, the Apostle Peter said. When we deal with that and we live in the forgiveness of God each day, then we live in a community where we're willing to be exposed because nothing you could throw at me could ever come against the forgiveness I've already received from God. See, a community built on forgiveness is a community that lives this exposed, sharing, fruitful, humble, incredible life. Incredible life together. And notice, they didn't get to any, anything other than the way that they were devoted to each other, the way that they were sharing with one another, the way they were committed to one another. And a bunch of other people were like, what in the world is going on? No one lives like that. No one lives perfectly forgiven. No one lives in this joy that you have. Everybody's either rationalizing what they've done or denying what they've done, but you seem to be perfectly exposed and perfectly comfortable. You notice that. Perfectly comforted and yet completely not comforted. Completely out of our comfort zone and yet completely safe. Completely exposed yet completely forgiven. I think the world is waiting for a church to live that way. So may you and I, by the power of the Spirit, live like that. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides, it cuts both ways. This morning in our comfort, it has afflicted us. This morning in our affliction, it has comforted us. And so we thank you for the work that only your gospel does. Because your yoke is easy and your burden is light. So help us to become this kind of church. Not about our brand and name, but about the name that is above every other name. Not the name of Jesus, that every tongue would confess that he is Lord. So God, would you do this work? Would your spirit lead us, guide us, wash us clean? May holiness, the holiness of our God be what is enjoyed in our people and to put on display to our neighborhood and our city and our world 
so that more and more would come to know this forgiveness that only comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?